Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're excited to be speaking with Sadia Modsberg, former managing director of the Rockefeller Foundation and co-author with former Rockefeller Foundation president, Judith Rodin, of the new book, Making Money Moral, How a New Wave of Visionaries is Linking Purpose and Profit. Sadia, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. It's wonderful to be here today, Esther. Thank you. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what brought you to the Rockefeller Foundation? Over the years, I have called three countries on three different continents home. I was born in Denmark to parents that had moved there from Pakistan. So my childhood was spent shuffling back and forth between those two countries. And then later on, I had a chance to come to the U.S. for two different study abroad programs during college. And I liked it here so much that around a decade ago or so, decided to move to the U.S. And since then, this has been home for me. My career has also followed a similar trajectory. I started off in management consulting right after I had finished business school. Later, I joined public service working for the city government of New York. And then, as you said in your introduction, I joined the philanthropic sector when I joined Rockefeller Foundation. So I joined the foundation back in 2013, and I left a little over one and a half year ago. I used to be the managing director overseeing the foundation's sustainable and impact investing program. We used to call it innovative finance. And as you well know, in this sector, there are many different terms that describe a lot of the same thing, which is how do you catalyze investments from capital markets towards companies, towards programs, towards projects, that not only deliver a financial return, but also contribute to a positive social or environmental outcome. And that is also what we tried to capture in the book, Judy and myself, which was a lot about how the field has developed at large, but also where it stands today and what we think the challenges as well as the opportunities are for the future. So it's been fascinating world to be a part of. It's been amazing to watch the growth from the very early days and also to be part of shaping what the future would look like. Thank you, Sadia. So I think that's fascinating because we've had many guests on the podcast who are multi-country nationals who have been born in one country, raised somewhere else, came to the United States, you know, had experience in many countries. Do you think this type of cross-cultural experience helped you look at this problem in a new way? I think it's both as to the cross-cultural experience, but it also the experience working in multiple sectors. Because as we look at what's happening in the field of sustainable and impact investing, a lot of the really interesting and promising solutions, and by solutions I mean financial instruments, by solutions I mean new partnership models, those models are coming together where we see business, government, and the philanthropic community working together to find out what the answers can be. 
because this really is both a challenge and an opportunity that spans all three sectors. I mean, let's just take climate change. There are so many different sectors that we could talk about and so many different development goals that we could talk about. But if you take climate change, the answer to how we can catalyze money to address the problem isn't going to come from Wall Street firms. They don't understand the complexity. They don't have the history that, say, NGOs or governments have on working on those problems. But they do have deep expertise when it comes to investments and the financial acumen. So it's about bringing all those different actors together to figure out you know, what the future models look like, as opposed to any one of them doing it alone. That's fantastic, Sajid. And that's a wonderful example of SDG 17, Partnership for the Goals, which was really envisioned that all different stakeholders would have to work together to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. So in the book, which is really a fantastic introduction, let's say, to a general reader or even a reader working in this field of the field, the history, the main players, you explain in the book how the term impact investing was coined at a Rockefeller Foundation meeting in 2007. So please tell us about that. It's funny, every time there is a conversation about the history or the trajectory of the field, one of the markers that are put down is the convening in 2007, where the term impact investing was coined. And it's not just because there was a new term that everybody thought was exciting. It's also because that was a point in time where you saw a lot of conversations happening in the investment world, in the entrepreneurship world, in philanthropy, that where people were trying to grapple with this idea of how can you invest not just for profit, but also for purpose. And it gave those people an opportunity to come together and have a conversation. And in that conversation, one thing that came up was, well, we need a common understanding of what this would be. We need a common framework that we can all work from. We need an architecture that would support the promise that this field has. So that's why that moment in time ends up being referred to so often whenever somebody's talking about the history. And also, I think it was the beginning of a lot of amazing things that happened in the field. Like it was the conversation that started then where the year after a similar conversation, the idea of the Global Impact Investing Network was born. And the Rockefeller Foundation was one of the founding funders that helped create GIN. It used to actually be housed out of the Rockefeller Foundation offices. Not many people know that. So we used to say, you know, it was incubated on the same floor where I used to work. But it was GIN. It was also a lot of research reports that the foundation was at that point uh, funding along with JP Morgan and GIN that really catalyzed the movement and the conversation and brought people together around a common framework. That's fantastic. And thank you also for highlighting the role that a foundation like Rockefeller can play in convening different actors from different sectors, as you say, to address a large problem that's too big for any one sector and to do it so early also before the financial crisis, well before the SDGs were even beginning to be negotiated. Clearly the thought leaders at Rockefeller had their finger on the pulse here and looking into the future to see 
not only what this new industry would be, but this new field that really needed to, to be created. And kudos to you and credit where credit is due for all of the work that the Rockefeller Foundation did in actually growing the field. So what are some of the most consequential investments you made, Sajja, with Rockefeller grant funding to build the field of impact investing? So Esther, maybe before getting to that, I could touch on what you were saying in terms of building a vision and then funding that vision and driving the work forward. I think if you talk to anybody, either from the Rockefeller Foundation or anyone else who was involved in the conversation, say over a decade ago, and you said, compared to where things stood back then to where we are today, have things played out the way you thought they would? I think you'd find that a lot of people have been overwhelmed by the interest and the growth and the momentum. And where the idea in the early days of the conversation was there is a great potential in the private markets, so not the entire capital markets, but private markets, to really do something that could move a lot of money towards businesses, towards entrepreneurs, towards projects. Over time, that notion of where the opportunity lies actually grew. So it went to sectors and geographies and asset classes and types of investors that I think very few people had envisioned 10 years ago. It's almost like the snowball effect where you start something and then you try it out and you see what's working, what's not, and then you pivot and something else happens in another part of the market and you bring that into the fold as well. We had fun, Judy and I, trying to write the chapters that lays out how things developed over the 10 years, because nothing in that development was linear, but a lot of different things coming together. Anyway, I, I digress, but I think it's, it's an interesting and important aspect when we talk about how a field has developed and what it takes to build a new field and catalyze momentum. But going back to your question, which had to do with what were some of the consequential investments that the foundation made, so the foundation grant funded and in certain cases also invested from what used to be known back then and still now as program related investments really spans so many different areas. I mean, we talked about gin, but some people probably don't know that the foundation also helped fund the early work around blended finance when it was a program that was housed at the World Economic Forum. And look at where that has come in all of these years. I think one area that also doesn't get so much attention is disaster risk insurance. With the funding that the foundation did, we helped stand up the African risk capacity. I mean, it was a white paper that somebody at the World Food Program had put out, which had this concept of disaster risk planning and insurance laid out that one of my colleagues at the foundation thought was deeply fascinating. And that started a series of grants that eventually led to the creation of African Risk Capacity. That's now a specialized agency of the African Union. Similarly, in the insurance space, when I was still there, we funded work around CDRIF, which is the Southeast Asian Disaster Risk Insurance Facility. We funded some of the work that led to the creation of the reef insurance product that's been piloted in the Mesoamerican reef and has been pointed towards as having great potential across the world. So there are so many different areas that I think you could point to, look back and point to and say the funding that the foundation gave back then has really helped start something that's grown to parts of the market that are now getting scale and impact in the ways that we had hoped it would. 
That's fantastic. And thank you for highlighting the role that nonprofits play in this key area, right? Because you guys seeded a field that was not a field at the time when you started to invest in it. So you helped create interest, you know, a business case, models, pilots, and that was done with grant funding. And it created an investable asset class that now investors, fund managers, for-profit partners are coming into, but you really needed that grant funding piece to create this because otherwise the business case wasn't there, the indicators weren't there. So we really see how this ecosystem relies on all the actors within it, the nonprofit players, the for-profit players, the multilateral institutions, all playing a specific role, but working in concert to solve some of these intractable problems with new solutions. That's quite inspirational. Esther, if I could add to that, I completely agree with that. And some of the conversations we had when we were shaping what was then called the Zero Gap Portfolio at the Rockefeller Foundation. So it was a subset of the sustainable and impact investing funding that we were giving. But that was purely focused on innovation, where we said there is a need for new financial instruments and new fund models to be created. We don't think that the government has the risk appetite to fund those programs because with innovation comes the risk of failure that's built into the idea of trying something new. And the government doesn't have the resources or the appetite to be able to fund those things. For the private sector at that point in time, it wasn't quite clear that sustainable and impact investing is going to be the future of investing the way it is today. So we always thought of the funding that we had as being unique in the sense that we could seek out these, what may have seemed at some point outrageous ideas and say, we will give you the grant funding to go and do the research and development. And we recognize that it may not work, but if it does work, we as a foundation are also going to help you get connected to other funders, people in the finance ecosystem, the NGOs, so really the convening component of it and the partnership building component of it. And then when it gets to a point where we see success happening, we see the market stepping in and taking things on, then we will move on to the next project or the next program and not always have philanthropic funding in the mix. That was the premise of the work that we did. And I hope that more of that continues in the future, not just in the area of sustainable and impact investing, but across the board, because that really is a way to get to new and better models that we need for the sustainable development goals. And we 100% agree. And the idea that government money or grant money or money that can be given without an expectation of a financial return should play this innovative role, should fund essentially R&D for new vehicles, new ways to address these problems. And then when there is a successful model, be handed off to a commercial player or a for-profit player that can take it forward without more public funding is, of course, an idea that UNCDF absolutely subscribes to and how we work in our maturity model as well. And of course, I have to cite the fact that Rockefeller was the one who incubated Impact Shares, which is the nonprofit fund manager that created exchange-traded funds for UNCDF, the NAACP, and the YWCA. And that was quite a new idea at that time as well. Definitely. As well as all the other institution and field building investments that Rockefeller made during your time there. 
So we talked about this a little bit earlier, Sadia. It sounds like you're surprised at how quickly assets are moving into ESG vehicles and how big this industry has grown since it was essentially birthed with Rockefeller Foundation support. It really has been a surprise. And there were times where you would doubt whether it's going to happen or not. Now it's not a question of is it going to happen or not. Now we know it's happening. It's a question of how do we keep the momentum going. I mean, I often referred to the sustainable and impact investing universe a decade ago as being a small informal market that counted philanthropies, high net worth individuals and development finance institutions as its champions. And because the world was small, it relied on personal trust. But that's possible when you're dealing with a small amount of money. Now, where the market is dealing in the trillions, of course, that means that who is involved, how things are done, it's much more complicated and it requires different structures and different institutions than what was needed in the very early days. What exactly got us to the point of like the hockey stick effect where it really took off I think is hard to point to. And that was also some of the conversations that Judy and I really dug into as we put together all of the research for the book. Because yes, philanthropy and nonprofits went in and very actively tried to figure out what these solutions could be. And that was to some extent driven by a vision for the future, but also a recognition that the budgets that these institutions had could not address the challenges or the needs. The amounts just didn't match up. There was also a lot of consumer activism that spilled over into investing, where individuals in the past had thought that they could effect change or bring about change with their spending money, realized that they could also do so with their investment money. You had the seminal Paris Climate Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals that were put into place from a policy framework that really brought attention to the role of capital markets and the need for financing early on. And then if you look at it purely from the financial markets point of view, there are some structural market shifts that happened following the 2008 financial crisis that positioned the market for growth. Right. It was both being in a very low yield environment where investors started looking for new opportunities and new markets where they found what sustainable and impact investing had to offer as being attractive. But it was also a lot of the money moving from active management to passive management. So back to what you were talking about with the instruments that Impact Shares has put out. So it was all of these pieces that came together and then all of a sudden you saw great growth in the market. But you can point to all of these things when you look at the market holistically. But if I were to boil it down to what really brought about big asset management firms entry into this space, I think a lot of it has to do with something that's purely investment driven. There was an understanding that if you want to protect your investment portfolios from social and environmental risks, 
you have to start looking at investments in a different way. Then these risks aren't externalities anymore. These are risks and it matters how you behave in the world as a company and as an investor. It also was a lot more research that just showed that you there were great growth opportunities with attractive returns that were available to investors as well. And who doesn't want to be part of where the growth markets are and where the future lies? That's great to hear that this change in the financial industry, where they really saw the economic opportunities of this type of investing, was also happening at the same time as a massive social change that we witnessed here at the UN, where new generations, women, young people, much more socially conscious investors were starting to demand from their financial providers these types of options, impact investment options, and even more recently, social justice options. So it's nice to see that the industry moved along the same way as uh, society was moving as well, that the demand and supply were working, generally speaking, in concert. Sorry, so now I was going to say, I think there's one fine point that sometimes gets overlooked in these conversations, and that has to do with the big important role that pension funds, so the asset owners that actually own the capital and are responsible for investing it. So the big shift that has happened in that community with a focus on creating long-term value, understanding that a lot of what is captured in the frameworks around sustainable development goals in the Paris Climate Agreement is about creating long-term value for society and for investors that don't think about these things in their way of doing business and in the way of investing are eroding the long-term value. And these funds, they have people now enrolled in the pension schemes that will be retiring in 40 years. You really need to make sure that it's invested in a way where the money is generating value for those people in 40 years. And it's not just about getting quick short-term profits here and now. Absolutely. And I think we really welcome that focus on long-termism and the idea of stewardship, that people who run money are not there just to make more money, that part of what their responsibility is to their investors, to their pension holders, to their stakeholders is pricing in these externalities and making decisions that create value in many forms, not just the financial value over a longer period of time. So in the book, Saja, and also in our conversation today, you've discussed some of the challenges of the field growing as quickly as it has. And one of those is fragmentation and confusion around impact reporting standards. So what can investors do to seek rigorous impact reporting when there seem to be so many standards out there? It really truly is one of the big challenges that the industry needs to deal with. Let's remember, it wasn't too long ago when these reporting frameworks were just yes or no questionnaires, right? You would get a thing, you could tick the thing as in, yes, I have a policy that covers human rights, or no, I don't have a way of addressing or, or tracking carbon emissions in my supply chain. So that's the world we came from. Where we are today, while it seems super complex and crowded, and it is super complex and crowded, it really has come a long way. It has come a long way in terms of the tools and the frameworks that have been put in place that are much more rigorous and much more in-depth, but also in terms of the data that is populated into these tools so that you can get insights. 
And because of the growth and because of the demand, you see a lot of different institutions going in and trying to figure out what those tools are. So you have generalist firms like Bloomberg or MSCI that used to do it just for the general investment community that now go in and provide solutions. You have specialist firms like Sustainalytics that were built with the purpose of looking at this part of the financial markets. The credit rating agencies, S&P and Moody's, they both have been developing their own tools and frameworks, but at the same time also been buying up smaller uh, players that they think are doing this well. And then you have a number of different asset managers from the state streets of the world to the TPGs of the world that have taken it upon themselves to develop their own tools. So I just want to put a marker down and say we really are headed in the right direction, but complexity is never a good thing. And over time, I do think that the market is going to converge around a few ones that are seen as the leading standard for assessing sustainability of investments. But till then, it's a bit of a Hunger Games situation where you pit one against the other and you see what's working and you see what's not working and you figure out over time which ones the market needs to adopt. And I would say here that we'd have to salute the GIN IRIS standard, the SASB work, the work of UN entities like the PRI or UNEP-FI that have really done fantastic say, contributions to the market and continue to push this field forward. I mean, Esther, those contributions were the basic foundation. Without those contributions, I don't think we would be where we are today because they really laid the groundwork. And again, recognizing that when we're talking about sustainable impact investing, we're talking about every single asset class out there. We're talking about the fixed income market, but we're also talking about public equities and we're talking about private equities. And within each one of them, understanding the nuances of how to do the reporting. I mean, you mentioned UNPRI, the case studies that they have built over time, where they've brought in the big investors that are doing it and doing it well to try and showcase what this looks like, what this could look like has been so, so important and so influential that I rattled off all of these new tools that are coming on, but IRS, UNPRI, SASB, without those, we wouldn't be where we are today. It's always nice to give credit where credit is due to our UN family colleagues as well. So Sajja, with so many recent entrants into the field of ESG investing, there's an unavoidable phenomenon of greenwashing where some firms or products are claiming impact from their investments that may or may not be there. What can investors do to ensure that their chosen vehicles achieve real impact? So impact washing really muddies the waters, right? It creates a lot of noise because all of a sudden you're in a situation where you have a lot of asset owners going in and saying, or asking the asset managers to create more products that are sustainable, that are green, that are aligned with the SDGs. And then you have the asset management community that's trying to keep up with the demand. And greenwashing in that case can take many different shapes, right? You can have asset managers that go out and take an existing fund 
and rebranded as green without really changing anything about the underlying strategies or how the money is invested or how impact is measured. So it's much more of doing it for the sake of PR or marketing. And then you can have products that are put out there, investment products that may have some sustainable component to it, but may also include programs that are really not good for society or they're really not good for the environment. But because they're labeled as green or sustainable, they're positioned to the world that way. I think it's a real challenge for anyone who's looking to put their money behind sustainable and impact investing, whether you're an institutional investor or whether you're an individual investor. So there's the due diligence that, of course, you have to do yourself to figure out what is real and what is not. But I think this is one of the areas where you really need the regulators to step in. You need the regulators to step in and say, these are the rules of the game. And a lot of that is happening with the regulation that's been worked on in the European Union for a really long time, because that doesn't just have to do with taxonomy, so basically standard definitions, but it also has to do with disclosures, where you have to comply and you have to put information out there that allows investors to know what they're putting their money behind and whether it has real impact or not. But also more recently, here in the US, the US administration has stepped up and said that they're going to be looking at these funds and they're looking at identifying, you know, misconduct when it comes to greenwashing and these challenges. That's great to hear. And we know that the European Union is really a leader in this field. It's very encouraging to see the SEC and the U.S. government coming into this as well. And we've heard from financial industry players that they really welcome this type of guidance because they do feel like there are a lot of free riders and that the more clear guidance there is on this issue, the better it would be for everyone who was really sincere about making this type of investment. So Saja, in your kind of long history with this field, what impact vehicle or investment has most surprised you and why? So there's so many things to point to, but maybe I can point to one of the bigger things in the market. I, I mentioned earlier, Esther, that when the impact investing players were organizing themselves and coming together, there was very much focus on investing in private markets. And by private markets, it's venture capital, it's private equity, it's funds like TPG Rise, which we cover quite a lot with different case studies in the book, where it's a question of identifying businesses that need capital to grow, that that are out there trying to build up a solid business while they're also addressing a societal challenge. So an example would be that TPG Rise has invested in a drone delivery company called Zipline that delivers medical supplies to rural communities that would otherwise be hard to reach. So that's here in the U.S., it's in different parts of Africa as well. But in that case, you as an investor go in, you're like, okay, I understand. There's a program, there's a project, I put my capital here. This is the return I could get and this is the direct impact because I can follow it. So that's the world of private markets. And there was real skepticism in the community. And even I had a lot of conversations in the early days about whether it was possible to have that kind of impact in the public markets. So 
companies that are listed on public exchanges, whether they be here or any other part of the world, if you go and invest in any individual one or in a bundle of them, as we all now can with exchange-traded funds, how do you know that you're getting impact because you're just investing in a company? And I think with a lot of the work that, say, Impact Shares has done and the ETF that you were earlier on referring to that UNCDF helped stand up, but also others, the conversation around engagement, the conversation around how investors can take their influence as owners to go and bring about real change in companies that have large footprints across the globe and really make a difference around children's rights in the supply chain or women's rights or reduce pollution, like how you really can take that voice as an investor and make a difference in big companies. I, I think that's probably the thing that I've found the most amazing in the recent years. And that growth and that momentum is only accelerating. That's fantastic to hear. And I think my favorite example of this is how our sister fund in Impact Shares, the NACP fund, has engaged very actively with companies like Starbucks and Facebook on issues like treatment of minorities and the profit of hate speech. And that not only have they met with management of these companies on those issues, but in some cases they've dropped companies from their portfolio because the companies were not willing to engage in a productive way. And I think that type of example gives investors a whole new possibility of changing corporate behavior or certainly choosing not to invest in companies that are not supporting their values. And also, Esther, the really interesting part of that example is you have all of a sudden the investment world that's partnered with an organization that's not coming from the investment world, but who has been at the forefront of addressing the issue of social justice and inequity for a very long time. And they have experience and networks that corporates or investors just wouldn't be able to access otherwise. And how you bring them together for a conversation that drives change is truly, truly impactful. I mean, one of the other ones that we have it in the book as well that I think is fascinating is if you take an asset manager like State Street, and the Fearless Girl campaign that they launched a few years ago. I mean, we were all mesmerized by it because all of a sudden you had the statues that was in front of the raging bull down in Wall Street. And it was like a tourist attraction of sorts there in the city. But it was a way for them to highlight the issue of gender diversity or lack thereof in the corporate boardrooms. And they use that campaign along with active conversations and engagements with the companies that they're invested in. And that's across sectors and across geographies to really push for more women in the boardroom. And you start to see change happen in that way too. So it's just this whole world that open up in public equities of bringing about positive environmental and social change that I think has been great and only getting started. It is very exciting. So Sadia, where do you see the field of impact investing going in the next, say, 10 years? That's the decade of action for the UN uh, to achieve the 2030 agenda, the Sustainable Development Goals. So where will impact investing be in 2030? 
So it's poised for strong growth. There's no doubt about that, Esther. I mean, where we stand today, we have the opportunity to take it from being here in the U.S., go back and cite a data point. The research now shows that one in three dollars that's managed professionally, professionally managed assets under management, are invested in sustainable strategies. Like a decade ago, you couldn't even count up to something that was a fraction of that. But there's a long way to go from one in three to being the way investment is done. And there's a long way to go from where we are today to actually having enough money mobilized to achieve the sustainable development goals or the Paris Climate Agreement. So I have great hopes for the industry based on how the trajectory has been and where we stand today. But a lot of it has to do with are we able to address the challenges that the industry is facing today? That'll determine whether we get close to funding the goals that we have set for ourselves as a global community. And in that vein, Sadja, what one thing would you do or change, if you could, to accelerate the growth of the field and make sure that we do achieve these ambitious goals that we've set for ourselves as a global community? The one thing, if I still was working in a place where I could go and fund things, would be figure out how to root out short-termism from the investment management industry. And let me say a few more words about it. A lot of the work that the foundation funded and other foundations as well, it wasn't just the Rockefeller Foundation, it was about building the architecture, it was about the frameworks, and then it became about the financial instruments to open up the market. But in all of that, Esther, the question also becomes, do you have financial institutions out there that can adopt this as the way of working? Many of the financial institutions that are now embracing sustainable and impact investing as a strategic business priority and imperative, they come to it with a less than stellar societal track record. I mean, it's often brought up and it's a real thing. And if we want this movement to really become the way investment is done in all of these firms, then it has serious organizational and cultural implications as well. It means rethinking talent management, the capabilities of merging the finance and impact pools so that you have those people not cornered away in a special group that does impact investing, but really embedded throughout the organizations. It's about recalibrating the incentive models. I'll share at one point in time, there was this fascinating conversation I was having when I was still at the Rockefeller Foundation about a new instrument. And we were talking to somebody from one of the big banks. And this gentleman looked at me and he said, you know, that sounds great. And on paper was technically like beautiful idea we had. And he just raised the question and he said, but why would I sell that product when I don't have any issues selling what I currently have and getting paid for it? So this entire question of what do you do with the incentive models, not just at the executive management level, which is what a lot of banks are now aligning, but how do you reward people so that they think long term and not just short term. And then lastly, related to the organizational aspect is also the question of how do you prepare the boards of these financial institutions to really understand 
what is happening in the sector so that they can guide the strategy and those organizations going forward. Great. Well, Sadia, it's been such a pleasure to profit from your expertise and knowledge. And for our audience, you can tap into this in the new book, Making Money Moral, How a New Wave of Visionaries is Linking Purpose and Profit. So thank you so much, Sadia, for being with us today. Thank you. It was wonderful being here. And thank you to our audience for tuning into UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.